like if the last two years have taught us anything, like you simply do not know what is coming at you. But I think that having a level of um, of flexibility and openness has definitely served me well throughout my career, for sure at Rural Central Kitchen. I think that that's something I really got out of my humanities education, which is that it was a little bit broad, right? So I, I love where I've wound up, which is with a lot of responsibility, kind of by virtue of being um, a senior member of the team in terms of how long I've been around, um, but also by virtue of being just, I'm sorry, I can't think of a better word, but a generalist. It's an asset. It's been a little bit of a winding road to get here, but I think the common thread throughout is like, what do I like? Like, how do I enjoy spending my day? What are issues I care about? Um, what is the mission that really speaks to me that really makes me, you know, get up in the morning and really believe in the work? It's kind of like with my major, it's like, how do I like to spend my time? I feel like we're all sort of trying to to get paid to do what we love or to be who we are, you know? This is What Are You Going to Do With That? A podcast where we explore everyday folks' decisions to study the humanities as undergraduates and their pathways to fulfilling careers. I'm Scott Muir of the National Humanities Alliance, an organization dedicated to promoting the value of the humanities on campuses and in communities. In this episode, we meet Emma Haberman, who studied art history and French en route to a career in nonprofit development. In the previous clip, we heard her reflect on how her education honed her curiosity and ethical sensibilities while providing her with a broad base of knowledge and an adaptable skill set. Emma didn't know exactly where this might take her, but she knew she wanted to pursue her interests and craft her own path. Today, Emma supports World Central Kitchen as director of special projects, helping to build a network of chefs and volunteers that provide quality meals to victims of disasters. This work responds to the human suffering brought on by the increase in catastrophic events resulting from climate change with resourcefulness and hospitality. Let's return to her story now. My, my major was art history, my minor was French. I think something that's always driven me, and it definitely drives me in my career now, is just enjoying how I spend my time. Um, even if I don't know where that's going to take me. So um, choosing to spend my time in in those fields. Um, and when I got to Dartmouth, two of my three classes, the first quarter were um, art history and French. In art history, it was a writing seminar, but it was about modern art, um, which is like the sort of, you know, middle of the 20th century. Um, and I think I was just drawn to it because I have always been interested in the visual arts and um, sounded cool. I really loved my professors. And I think that that was in both those classes. And I think that that just kind of set me on a path of um, of pursuing those things. Um, I didn't know at the time, like if I wanted to really pursue either um, as the profession, but it was, um, they were amazing professors and that really makes a big difference. Yeah. So my our history professor, the the first class I took at Dartmouth was um, was this art history seminar. Professor was Jim Jordan. He was kind of like your archetypal college professor, I think, uh, like uh, New English college professor, like you know, tweed coat and older white man with a bushy beard and sorry, no beard, mustache. Important, important. Yes. Difference. Okay. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. He was just kind of like wacky in his way, but also 
like really made you care about, I think art, I think art history, I mean, you need to care about art, right? Like you need to think that there is value in art and in preserving culture um, through Mm -hmm. a physical material thing that is accessible for people for decades and generations to come. If you don't care about that, it's not going to be interesting to you. And I think that he did a beautiful job of just making you really care about the stuff. I don't know. I just found it so captivating and so interesting and like, you know, small class size discussion-based approach, which both in art history is very much like facts and stuff, but it is also about discussion and and talking about, you know, how we got from from then to now and how we got from here to there. And then French too, there's sort of so much to do with it. Um, you could definitely focus on different um, time periods or you could focus on literature, you could focus on history. So I think, you know, what I what drew me to both of those fields was their openness, I think, as someone who just sort of needed a little bit of wiggle room since I didn't really have like a clear a clear path. I took a lot of English classes. Like that was another area that I thought would be a place that I gravitated towards as a major. Um, so I, de- I definitely tended to lean into classes that were about, um, about analysis and sort of, you know, digging into a specific text or work of art and, and talking about it and using that as a way to, you know, look at either issues um, of history or, or contemporary issues, like leaning into different elements, I guess, of, of the humanities that sort of dig into how we look at our world. But also I think that what I love about an education that was sort of based in analysis of, of texts, of artwork, is that it encourages curiosity and, and asking questions, which I think has definitely carried on to my career. Um, and I graduated like ahead of the recession, right? So that was a, a, a weird time. Oh, I remember feeling envious of people I knew who, you know, had gone through corporate recruiting and I just knew that wasn't what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what it was I did want to do. I had all these skills, right? Which again, I think come from the humanities, which is I I like talking to people. I can do that. I am a strong writer. Like for sure, that's something that my humanities education gave me. And it's something that is not to be taken lightly, by the way. I wanted to use my French background um, and do something cool. And so, and I wound up moving to France and working as a paralegal more in service of speaking French and less in service of of corporate law in my mind. Sure, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, which was which was great. Um, but that felt like one path. Like one path is like, okay, what can I do with this one skill, which is speaking French? And I was sort of looking for that. Like I kind of wanted to find a job that would, um, that would set me on a particular path. So part of the appeal of working at a law firm was, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get into the law and like, I'll go to law school and then I'll be a lawyer and, and that'll be what I do. Um, which isn't what happened, but I was really lucky to be able to have that job what I did because it brought me to France, which, um, was just, again, from like a cultural enrichment and just like life opportunity perspective was huge. But I just, I feel very, very fortunate that that was just sort of what happened to work out. While I was living in France, I had developed a real interest in, in cooking and in food. And so that was something that always interested me was um, was doing something in the culinary world. Um, I thought writing would be, you know, writing about food or um, food journalism would be an interesting path, but didn't really know how to, um, how to, how to get there, I guess. It, it was a hard time to find a job in the U.S. From there, Emma spent a brief stint tutoring students, writing a weekly recipe column, and working part-time gigs while exploring various opportunities. 
She referenced the movie Sliding Doors when recalling a moment when she was a candidate for three different jobs, two jobs in the food world and one at the Fresh Air Fund, a nonprofit that provides summer camp opportunities to low-income children in New York City. There, she found her stride in the field of nonprofit development, proceeding to bigger roles at the American Institute of Architects and the New School, and developing a specialty building community through events. Here's Emma on how she landed on this path. What I realized really um, spoke to me. I love talking to people, and you really, um, in a development office, you, that's a big part of your job. And then events, you're interfacing with with your constituents, whether that's the board or donors or um, the the you know the community that your organization serves. It's just people, and that's what I that's what I always really have loved. Um, and I think that approach to the sort of how we learn, not necessarily what we learn, um, is is relevant because um, I think to be interested in people, you need to be curious about them and also curious about the work, right? So trying to learn more about the program so that you can adequately, um, like if you don't care about the mission of your organization, you will never get anyone else to care about it either, right? So I think that analytical approach and curiosity is is essential to that type of work. Um, What I did really like was um, sort of keeping things in order and and um, the sort of project management angle and the organizational side of events. Um, and it, events really made sense to me as a way of engaging people experientially, right? Um, so, you know, whether that is like a, a black tie gala or a cocktail party or a volunteer experience, um, sort of bringing people together to learn more about the work um, just made a little bit more sense to me as a way to not only like, not only tell the story of the mission, but also to, you know, I, I thought I always found it easier to say, okay, well, you're going to give us $1,500 and in return, you will have this, you know, experience, right? It's like a little bit of an easier sell than just please give me $1,500. I mean, it's not me, it's the the organization, obviously, but um, but as a fundraising mechanism and like a way to like engage people, that really made sense to me. And so you know, what I love about event work, for example, is that it is really measurable, tangible outcomes, right? Like, you know, you can quantify how many people came. You can quantify how much money was raised, if that's your goal. Um, you can qualitatively analyze, like, experience and, like, was it a benefit for your organization or not? came to DC for my husband's job. Um, so I, I moved here with no real plan. Um, I did want to stay in events and I wound up seeing just a job posting to be the uh, events manager at World Central Kitchen. And it like kind of rang a bell um, because throughout just in my personal life, I've always had this interest in in food and restaurants. And so I knew of the founder, Jose Andres, who is a very famous chef, um, but he wasn't as well known at the time. This is in 2018. And he also didn't have the sort of humanitarian platform that he does now. So I dug a little bit and realized he's like a huge deal in general, but also in in D.C. And that this organization um, has been around for, at the time, I mean, it was founded in 2010, but really became known for for its disaster response work after Hurricane Maria. Um, I was really interested in it. I was like, maybe this is a cool way to kind of merge my interest in the culinary world with my nonprofit and specifically my event experience. Um, 
they had one annual fundraiser at the time, but they were really looking to grow the event program to have that be a major source of revenue. There was no development team at the time. Um, all the fundraising was sort of done by the chief program officer, the um, the CEO. Um, there was a, a partnerships consultant who's now our full-time COO, who I report to. So it was really a sort of scrappy startup-y vibe, which, um, which really appealed to me. Our mission is about food and humanity and um, and hope and community. And our team's mission in that work is to provide freshly cooked meals to people during times of crisis. So following Hurricane Maria, um, before the hurricane, WCK was tiny, right? And we just had this insane rate of growth where um, we saw all these donations. It went from being a $600,000 organization to a $21 million organization in a year. Um, we also have you know, continuing along the clean cook stoves work, it's, we call it our resilience arm. So that's focused on clean cooking, um, culinary training. Um, and then our newest program is our chef relief training, which, which trains cooks and chefs in our emergency response practices so that they can theoretically, you know, respond to any disaster in their community that maybe might be too small for WCK to respond to. Um, and then the last piece of that work is, of, of the resilience work is our Food Producer Network, which is all about economic empowerment and strengthening local food systems. It gives grants to um, local food producers. And maybe that's used to, you know, like rebuild an irrigation system or, um, you know, uh, put the roof back on a greenhouse that was destroyed or, or anything that, you know, sort of a direct impact from the, the, the disaster. But then we also have ongoing um, capacity building trainings. And the goal of that program is to really create sustainable food systems so that when something happens like a Hurricane Maria where imports are cut off, um, that you don't have an island that's stuck with no way to to source food. And so, which was a huge issue in Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico at the time, 85% of their food products were imported, um, which just, you know, when that's cut off, like your toast. So, um, so that program's expanded to the Bahamas, uh, Guatemala, U.S. Virgin Islands, and soon St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which are all places where we've had a disaster response. Places that are vulnerable to disasters that that have the same sort of issues. So it's this nice closed loop where, you know, the the, the relief work is very urgent, very of the moment. We have this sort of resilience piece that follows. Yeah, it seems like the ambitions have really grown. I saw like a a billion dollar vision for climate crisis disaster response. Yeah, we it's our we call it our climate disaster fund. So that's our the goal is to raise a billion dollars in the next ten years. Um, to it really it's to help us continue to do what we do, but just go bigger because we really view our work in response to climate change. Um, the natural disaster stuff for sure. I mean, you know, storms are more frequent, they're more devastating, they're less predictable. You know, a week ago, there were these insane tornadoes that tore through Kentucky. And so our team is down in central and western Kentucky now. Like this past year in February, which is historically a quieter time, there were these insane freezes in Texas. And the Texas grid is not equipped to handle that. And so, um, yeah, we're something that I think is really important to the, this organization is that we have a, a really flexible um yeah, resource framework, I guess, so that we can go to the areas of highest need whenever we need to. The main way we measure impact is in number of meals served. And that's impressive. 60 million meals. Jose always says that he, 
you know, he built a career feeding the few, but with World Central Kitchen, you know, he gets to feed the many. But it's not that meaningful until you hear the story of like the the woman whose family left Guatemala and has been waiting at the border in Tijuana for a year or um, you know, the the volunteer who found a photograph in a tree in his house like three hours from where the tornado hit and realized that it must have come from someone's home that was destroyed. And so he got in his car and drove up and started volunteering with us. Like, you just hear these stories over and over. Um, I think that that's like our, our most powerful tool. We really see over and over when people are in the worst situations, like when when a tornado takes everything, like take, you know, your home, your your car, your memories, like all of that, like time and time again, people just really show up for their communities, whether that's volunteering with us or um, or another organization or whatever it is. Like we just really see the best of humanity over and over. And um, that's what we try to foster. The common thread in in my humanities education and in my work now is just people and like caring about, you know, a, a love of, of people and also um, the stories that bring us together, which I think is really what what I loved about my education was you know, whether it's art history and kind of looking through history through that lens or in French, which, and or I mean, any of the English classes I took, it's all about storytelling and about how we connect with each other. And so, you know, with my focus on art history, you're looking at um, all these different moments in, in time through the really specific lens of the fine arts. But you're learning about all of these, um, you know, all of these time periods, all of these places, like, you know, I don't know, life in empirical Japan and, um, you know, early Christian, um, what's now Italy and Rome, like the Roman Empire, like all these times that really are um, are different from each other and distinct from from what we know, but really looking at all through the same critical lens of what it means to be a person in the world, you know? And I think that that's very directly tied to what we do know, you know, a, a family living in Kentucky and a family at the border of um, the U.S. and Mexico and a family in the Philippines where there was just a typhoon, like such different experiences, but all tied together. Like, in you know, there are things that bind us as, as, um, as people and as humans and food is one of those, right? Food is our culture. It's just one of those universal human rights that really ties us together. And food is dignity is a, is something that we repeat over and over, um, because when you are in that situation, when you just feel so hopeless, like just a sign that someone like cares enough to cook, you know, to think about what you're eating is, I think, really powerful. So I joined in 2018. There were six of us at that point. Um, and three years since I started were like 75 people um, and have just had another like wild, wild period of growth but it's it's cool it's like been really cool to see how it's how it's grown to be involved in building something not quite from the ground up but um but sort of joining in the middle where there's like sort of infinite potential and um and that's definitely been the case it, it started with a focus on events but like any startup um it's sort of a or it was at least sort of like a nothing is not your job and the organization has changed so much in my three years there my particular job has evolved um, to include supporting our COO, um, helping sort of streamline the the more like cost savings partnership. Um, looking at our chef community is something that I focus on. So as director of special projects, I'm in charge of um, 
you know, how we engage our various communities through um, experiential moments, I guess, or like experiences. So, you know, that can be events um, and, and sort of more traditionally and hopefully going forward will continue to be events, whether that's in person or online. But yeah, you know, sort of how we're engaging with our communities of, of donors, of volunteers, of chefs um, on an ongoing basis in a way that really brings them a little bit closer to the work by physically, usually, or at least remotely being in the same place. Because our work is does tend to be pretty episodic. Um, I think having a sort of constant eye on how we're, you know, making sure that we're, we have regular touch points with those various communities. And so it's been cool because as we've grown and changed, I've been able to evolve my role, which I've been grateful for, especially during the pandemic when like we didn't do any events, you know, and like a lot of people in the events world didn't have a job. And I'm, I had almost the opposite problem, which is we were so busy because we launched this big response to help um, try to tackle some of the more like emergent, urgent hunger issues that came to light during the pandemic and trying to support restaurants, you know, at a time when I was seeing my peers or colleagues who whose jobs were suddenly not essential because no one was gathering in person. Um, I was really grateful to have this um, place to not only stay busy, but also try to sort of, you know, innovate as we as we grow as an organization. And I think that's been a good realization for me is that like, I like being behind the scenes and I like playing the support role um, and just thinking differently, you know? But I think that that has been really helpful um, in all my jobs, just like being able to think critically, like, does this way make sense? You know, could we look at this? Could we solve this problem another way? Like everything is just problem solving, you know? Um, And I think it's just about like asking the right questions and, I, I do think that's something that definitely comes from my education. I think success for me is like working at a place whose mission I really believe in um, and with people who I really um, respect and care about and and admire. And if that's all true, then then we're having a positive impact on, you know, in our sphere of influence. Since recording this interview, World Central Kitchen has continued to expand its sphere of influence. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, World Central Kitchen immediately launched a massive response, quickly building the largest food relief operation in Ukraine. By July, they had served over 100 million meals in the country, as well as millions more to Ukrainian refugees displaced to Poland, Romania, Moldova, Hungary, and Spain. 